The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. I'm joined by my Top Docs partner and co-host, Michael Merrill. Hey, Ken. Glad to be here. Today, we're talking to IndieWire at-large editor Ann Thompson, who joins us to break down the best feature documentary Oscar shortlist, which was just released on December 21st, which is yesterday. Hi, Ann. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back. Great to have you back for a third year in a row to discuss this short list. We've all had less than, I think, or just about 24 hours to digest this list. This will be fresh on our minds. And of course, there will be no changing of minds for the next month. <laughs> I'm already second guessing myself. Yes, too. So what we want to do to start is just very briefly remind folks about how the Oscar voting for the short list takes place. So Indulge me in my annual spiel about this rather arcane process. Here we go. The 15 documentaries named to the shortlist were chosen by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences documentary branch, which has about 650 members. And the branch voted from among 167 features that were eligible for the 2024 Oscars. The next step will be for this same documentary branch to vote from among these 15 to choose five nominees. Those nominees will be announced on January 23rd. And then at that point, the entire voting academy will have the opportunity to vote from among those five to choose the winner, which will be announced at the Academy Awards ceremony on March 10th. We've all got that now, right? Mm -hmm. Great. <laughs> it's interesting that the branch members are each given a list of about 12 that they have to watch, each of them, and then they can watch all the more that they want to. Now that's first. a great point. So they all have homework to do. Yeah. And then they have this sort of optional opt-in where they can watch as many of the other ones as they want. Which I think explains why you get so many little movies in there that maybe you didn't necessarily see around and about in the big festivals or the big award shows. Yeah. One thing to note about today's conversation is that we're going to be talking about our picks to win, not our personal favorites. So we are just doing horse racing handicapping today, pretty much. So it's always interesting to not only see what's on these lists, but of course, to contemplate what's missing. The surprises both on the list and then the surprise omissions. What were the films that were not on this list, and that you expected to see? I didn't necessarily expect to see them, but they could have been there easily, given a lot of the promotion that they had behind them. For example, Pigeon Tunnel, The Air of Morris, The Mission from the Boys State filmmakers. Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. Which Nat Geo put a lot of promo behind. 
CNN didn't necessarily give Little Richard I'm Everything the kind of push that they would have, I think, in the old days before they cut back on the division. Netflix certainly was putting a lot of energy into the deepest breath, which didn't get there. And the one that I feel honestly should have been there, and I know why it isn't, is probably because a lot of people didn't see it, but the Sundance film Kokomo City. I would have liked to have seen that in there. Yeah. Just to pick up on that list, uh, The Pigeon Tunnel is one that I thought was actually an excellent film. I think that some people found it, they said, oh, you know, Errol Morris is falling back on his old tricks. But I found it to be really fascinating. It's like a twinning story. It's about these two kind of twins, him and Jean-Luc Carré or David Cornwell, and how they really use some very similar techniques in trying to uncover the truth through kind of deceptive methods in many cases. And so I thought that felt there's really a culmination of two careers, these two twinned careers. I thought it was a wonderful film. I'm a little surprised not to see it here. Errol Morris seems to be an acquired taste. I think he's a genius. I really do. I love that movie. I interviewed him for it. I mean, he has style to burn, and he did use all of his skills, the Interatron and, and everything. But it was also about these two brilliant guys going against each other in a sort of standoff of interrogation. I, I just thought it was hugely entertaining. Also, but it, maybe it just lacked gravitas. And maybe if you didn't know John le Carre and his work, which I happen to, to love, maybe you didn't respond to it. I think that was definitely a factor for sure. Ken asked me, does anyone under 50 know who John le Carre is? <laughs> um, and I think it's a good question. Those surprise omissions or somewhat surprise omissions, those were all the ones I had on my list, Dan. There was one more also by a cinema master, Anselm by Vim Vendors, which didn't make the list. It's a 3D documentary, which maybe not a lot of people were able to see in 3D, which is, of course, how we wanted they people to see it. They required that you see it that way. So that was a problem. So that limited the number of people who actually saw it to people at festivals or who got to 3D screenings in mostly in LA or New York. Yeah. It's a really great film, though. It was a little arcane, I think, for you. You have to have some accessibility. I thought it was gorgeous and beautiful, but it got into all this stuff about German existentialism and literature. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I am not well read in this universe. I don't think people like to be made to feel not well read. I think it's it doesn't go over too well. The mission is another interesting one because I think it was very well done. It's one of those ones I keep coming back to and thinking about over and over again. I, I did watch the promotion as they tried to promote this on Twitter, on X. There was a lot of backlash from people like, why are you platforming this person who did this horrible thing, this young man? And I, I do want to point out to anyone who's listening, this is not a film that lionizes the subject. It really questions why he did what he did, who was behind him, who was pushing him. And it's very adept at exploring kind of the narratives, especially colonialist narratives that drive this sort of behavior. So I, I, it's not a, a blind celebration. It's a very strange movie. I remember while I was watching it, I was going, what the hell is going on here? And I think the filmmakers are extraordinarily gifted and actually figured out how to tell the story. And you're right, the colonialist narrative was, in fact, the most important part of it. But it was also about religion and how crazy that can make you as well. The other one that 
possibly could have been here was the disappearance of Share Height, which was on a lot of people's list. I saw that at Sundance and loved it. And no one was writing about it. It was the quietest thing. There are a couple of movies. I mean, the, the other movie that was sort of like this, it turned out okay, Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project, which is on the shortlist. But these were films that took a long time, like a lot of other films out of Sundance, to get picked up. And it meant that they entered the awards race late and didn't have a lot of momentum going through the summer. It, I, I can't explain to you enough how important it is to get that attention all the way through. Sundance caught up with itself in the end, but it, it, there was a period there where it looked like a lot of the films that played there weren't even getting distributed. And this one just didn't get enough attention, I don't think. I loved it. Feminist sex researcher, Cher Height, glam sex researcher. It's interesting you mentioned Sundance, Anne, because it does continue to be a strong influence on this process, or at least a strong predictor. Last year, eight of the 15 on the shortlist premiered at Sundance. This year, seven of the 15. So it's pretty consistently now almost Usually half Usually it's about half. four out of five of the final five mm -hmm. come from Sundance. Let's talk about our favorites, our top five. And again, this was hard this year, I think. There were a couple that were really easy to pick. And then we had a whole bunch that could have been in this kind of tier of the top five or maybe in the next five. The two of you together? Yeah. Okay. You had to agree. You had to have a consensus. We did. I think I, I bow to Ken's better knowledge of this. That's Mike's way of saying any mistakes are mine and mine alone. <laughs> so these are your calls predicting what will be in the top five. Absolutely. Not what should be, but what we believe will be. But don't you want to say that? Don't you want to build up to it? You're How giving so? your pay at the beginning. Yeah. We talked about going the other direction from the bottom up, but it just doesn't work as well. Okay, this is your podcast. I, I love that you're you're living up to your moniker of editor at large, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe next year we'll go the other way, Anne. Here's our top five, the favorites, top tier. American Symphony, Matthew Heinemann's intimate depiction of the enduring bond between John Batiste and Suleika Jaoud as he endeavors to finish his symphony and she battles with life-threatening illness. Matthew spoke with Ken and me on the pod. Beyond Utopia. Director Madeline Gavin joined Ken on the pod to talk about her film's depiction of two families planning daring escapes from the ruthless North Korean regime. Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. Ken spoke with directors Michelle Stevenson and Joe Brewster about their highly imaginative portrait of radical poet Nikki Giovanni. Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. We spoke with Davis Guggenheim regarding his mixed verite and film clip biography of actor and funny man, Michael J. Fox, as he struggles to come to grip with Parkinson's. 20 Days in Mariupol was joined by director Mstislav Chernov, who described how he managed to film the final days of the Russian siege of the embattled Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Those are our top five, And I agree with you on American Symphony, Beyond Utopia, and Still. Those three yep. are for, for real, I think. The one I have in the top five that you don't is the Eternal Memory, her mate Alberti, who got nominated before for the Mole Agent, and she's a Chilean director, and this is an extraordinarily moving portrait of uh, a husband and wife as the husband battles Alzheimer's, and he was a great intellectual and journalist who depicted what the country went through 
during um, the Pinochet regime. And, and an incredibly charming man, it should be noted as well. He was lovely. And she was an actress and a cultural minister. And so she's a she's not to be ignored. I got to meet her and she's just amazing. She's a force of nature. I'm thinking that's going to, because of the emotion that that's going to have, and also the international bent of the Academy now, which is much more than it used to be. So international films do better than they used to. So that's one I put in there. And then the other one is stamped from the beginning from Roger Ross Williams. Why did I do that? Partly Netflix is behind it. Partly it's really good. And partly Roger Ross Williams was a former governor and a uh, Oscar winner. And he was nominated once before. I don't know how else to put this, but he's popular. People really like him. It's interesting because the ones that were very easy for us to decide would be here were American Symphony, Beyond Utopia, and Still, just as you said. Those are the three that seem almost a given here, may have surprises. And the other two are the harder ones. And, and there could have been a number of other ones in the next tier who we thought could have been here. I was thinking about, you were talking about late-breaking campaigns, and it seemed like Stamp from the Beginning is another one of those. Yeah, it broke out of the fall festivals. And obviously, you know, it's Netflix, so they, they're behind it, but it doesn't seem to have garnered too many awards or nominations compared to some of these others. Do you think that could be a factor? Yes, I'm not positive about that one, I would say. I'm also curious in terms of form, I will say I did not see a completely finished version of Stamp from the beginning, so it had some green screen in it and some other effects that were waiting to be completed. But it certainly seems like it involves a lot of different formal elements. While I wouldn't, I would definitely not call it experimental. Just wondering about your take on the eternal question, speaking of eternal memory, films that push the form a bit, are they handicapped at all or are they potentially helped because they're seen as maybe more creative? What do you think? I think he gets points. I think what he does with illustration and the look at our, our nation's history is pretty extraordinary and beautiful. He used animation in Life Animated, and he's, he's very, yeah, right, he's very innovative in that way. I, I think it's a gift that he has. I'm curious about your take on 20 Days in Mariupol. That is a movie that I easily could have put in the top five because it, it killed me, okay? It killed me. I watched it. I was incredibly impressed with what the filmmakers went through, their bravery their willingness to stick around as long as they did at great cost to themselves and potential danger. They got out by the skin of their teeth. I was horrified by what the movie showed, and it's not a stretch to look at what's going on in Gaza and feel that there's some parallels to be drawn there. Unfortunately, not easy ones, but it's just about the agonizing witnessing of parents losing their kids, things like that, you don't forget. So this puts you right up in front of the human cost of a war. It really does. Since we're handicapping the race, I have been wondering, with the events in Gaza, is this film, which is about Ukraine, somehow diminished in terms of the kinds of stories that Doc Branch members are focused on in their own lives as they're reading the newspaper and thinking about things? If the final vote was taking place, you know, four months ago, three months ago, would people have a different relationship to the events depicted in this movie than they do now? There are people who are avoiding watching it 
because they know it's upsetting. Most stock branch members, I would like to think, are hearty souls who can stand up to that. I, I would think it would help it, if anything. It could go either way. It's hard to say. I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I, I could have put it in the top five. The one I'm confident about is the eternal memory. You could easily put 20 days in instead of stamp from the beginning. Next up, we have our tier two or runners up, Apollonia, Apollonia, a Globes portrayal of a young artist navigating the art world in an era of patriarchy, capitalism, and war. Bobby Wine, the people's president. Ken spoke with directors Moses Boyo and Christopher Sharp about their harrowing depiction of the Ugandan opposition leader, activist, and musical star Bobby Wine's campaign for president. The Eternal Memory, I spoke with Meta Alberti about her film depicting a celebrated Chilean couple dealing with Alzheimer's, which also serves as a meditation on the personal and political meanings of South American history. Fourth Daughters, Dr. Kawather Benhanias, fascinating hybrid documentary depicts a Tunisian woman whose two eldest daughters were radicalized by Islamic extremists. Stamp from the beginning, Roger Ross Williams' insightful and multi-layered exploration of the origin, evolution, and continued impact of racist anti-Black narratives in American society. And Anne picked the eternal memory and Stamp from the beginning to be at the top level nominees. Yeah, the other ones are the same, except that I have a Apollonia, Apollonia, in the bottom five. Interesting. I have going to prayers, the Nikki Giovanni project in this group, and I have 20 days in Mariupol in this group. So we agree, just sort of switched out some of these, the films in the two top tiers here. And what do you think is keeping going to Mars out of the top tier? I really like this movie a lot. And I even watched it twice, which is unusual. I don't usually do that. I interviewed uh, one of the filmmakers. I wish I had interviewed Michelle Stevenson as well. I interviewed Joe Brewster and the producer. I have a feeling that Michelle Stevenson has a lot to do with how good this movie is. What I love about it is that it is organic. Nobody decided this was the structure. This was the way the story was going to be told in advance. They found it and they shaped it. And it took a long time and a lot of thought. And the character herself, Nikki Giovanni, is just so charming and delightful. And I was very moved by it. Going to Mars could easily be in the top tier. I think it's a little, not sure how accessible it is to a wide group of people. I think the filmmakers are popular and respected. And I think the movie is too. But I feel like there are other films that are more, more popular and more respected. It's interesting to bring in the filmmakers into the equation. There's a lot to do with it. You have the full spectrum. I'm sure we have first-time filmmakers on this list. I haven't. I think maybe the Bobby Wine ones, at least one of them is. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Oscar winner and Davis Guggenheim. And then you have everything in between. People have been nominated. People have made the shortlist. Michelle and Joe, their big breakthrough was 10 years ago with American Promise, which a lot of people love that film. And it feels like maybe their moment 10 years later to get recognition for all the work they've done since then. I still think HBO should have picked it up a lot sooner and promoted it sooner. I really feel strongly about this. It was quiet for a very long time in a way that it shouldn't have been. We think of Apollonia Apollonia as a strong runner-up. Can you talk about why you're handicapping it as a also yeah. ran or a I will tell you board? why. The reason yeah. why is that I haven't seen it. And if I haven't seen it, because I am like, I'm like a rover, you know, a dog with a bone trying to see everything, somehow 
that message that I was supposed to see, Apollonia, I'm reading about it now, and I'm going, oh, this looks really cool. I should see this. Sometimes, is it about the publicity? Is it about the marketing? Did somebody not reach out to me? Is it my fault for being passive and accustomed to having people come to me? Did I not pick up on it at a festival? I don't know, but somehow it missed me. Did that miss other people? Yeah, it's been showing up on some lists late. And then Bobby Wine, the people's president, has strong backing from Nat Geo. How do you handicap this? We actually thought that this might won be. the IDA, right? So that's a good sign. Even if we don't know exactly what the IDA is anymore, what it means, it's not what it used to be. It's not as powerful or predictive as it used to be. It's a, an organization in serious flux. They have a new president. Hopefully they're going to get their act together and recover. And I wish them well. I'm not being critical of them at all. It's a tough situation they were in. But don't know how much importance to accord the fact that it won, but it means something. Somebody voted for it. True. And it did beat out Apollonia, Apollonia, going to Mars and in the rear view, which were all nominees for the IDA award. I would note that the Eternal Memory won Best Editing, so it did get an award. Four Daughters also got a, the Best Writing Award at the IDA. Have any take on Four Daughters? I haven't seen it yet. Four Daughters I saw, and I really liked it. It's an interesting situation. There are two films that played at Cannes, and they were in uncertain regard, both directed by women, both shared the Cannes Documentary Prize. And one of them, I believe it was The Mother of All Lies, got the directing prize. Four Daughters uses a very innovative technique telling the story, which is to get actors to come in and, and play some of the parts so that they could try to find the truth of what happened to this family and the daughters in the family, the two that went away, got taken over by ISIS. The other movie, The Mother of All Lies, I think is the better movie and is even more impressive. They used puppets in this case. It ended up getting nominated. It is a documentary. It ended up getting nominated in the international side, not in the doc side. And I think that's too bad because it's the people in the doc world who actually could recognize how extraordinary it is, but it didn't have a distributor. And so the underlying story here is who got promoted, who got seen. How did these movies register with all the potential Academy voters? And another data point is that the director of The Mother of All Lies did win the Best Directing Prize at, at the IDA Awards. That's what I thought. <laughs> yep. Okay, I knew it was something significant. <laughs> one, one other point to make is that two of the documentaries on the shortlist are also on the shortlist for Best International Feature. Those two are Four Daughters from Tunisia and 20 Days in Mariupol from Ukraine. Does that ever play into this? Yes, it does, because the more at the end of the day, if they make it into the top five, the more categories you're in, the more people from those categories have to see your movie. So it's good. Good for both of them. I don't want to say I didn't like Four Daughters. I did. But the mother of all lies blew my head off. Is there still a, a stigma against hybrid docs that use actors in the academy in the branch voting? Apparently not. All right. Remember, we have the bigger list now, like, did you say 650, something like that? Over 600? Yeah. That's a much, much, much bigger list than that small cabal that used to 
to run the show. Over the years, you can go back to Roger and me when people got mad at Michael Moore for reenactments and stuff. That's all over. I think now a lot of these movies get rewarded for being innovative and entertaining. What do you think? I think that has been a factor recently. It's a it's but it's interesting if the same branch voted to put films on the short list with recreations with actors, why wouldn't they continue to vote for them to make the top 5? Logically, it seems like that hurdle has already been overcome. But there is still something in me that says they might think twice before voting for films that use those techniques for the final nominations. But I don't know. I would like to think that's not a hindrance anymore. And next year, we'll be talking about how the doc branch feels about AI. Boy. All right. It's our tier three. These are dark horses. Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy, my favorite title. The late Nancy Bierski's behind-the-scenes look at the creation of the legendary film, as well as its reception in an era of great cultural change. In the rear view, Maciej Kamala presents a unique road movie as a Polish van populated by evacuated persons traverses a war-bound Ukraine. A still small voice, Lawrence's intimate and deeply empathetic betrayal of participants in a hospital residency program for aspiring chaplains. And we spoke with uh, Luke at Sundance. 32 Sound. Sam Green explores the world of audio and its power to bend time, cross borders, and profoundly shape our perceptions of the world. To Kill a Tiger. Dr. Nisha Pahuja tells the story of Indian farmer Ranjit, who embraces the fight of his life when he demands justice for his 13-year-old daughter, the victim of a brutal gang rape. Our list is the same, basically. The Nancy Bierski thing, I should have figured it out because... She was a beloved filmmaker who died. So that has a lot to do, because I usually they don't go for celebrity Hollywood. Now, Michael, Michael J. Fox is an exception, and so is John Batiste, but both of those rise well above. They're elevated by the way that they're made and the emotions that they generate. So I have To Kill a Tiger. I have 32 Sounds. I have In the Rear View. I have Desperate Souls, and I have Apollonia in the bottom five. So Still Small Voice, as Still Small Voice, do you see as second tier or third tier? That was in my middle tier. And we struggled with this too. We had this up and down. Can you talk about how you uh, handicap it as middle tier? This is a case of a movie that I heard about from the beginning at Sundance. It did well there. Everybody told me to see it, and I never saw it again. This is another one that I didn't see. It's getting recognition. I mean, it's getting awards, mentions. I think it's well known and I think it's well regarded. That's why I put it in the middle tier. And in the rear view, that's one that obviously in some ways, when you think about the politics or the game theory, this ad a little bit, it's potentially going to run into challenges with 20 Days of Maripol, right? Because they're both Ukrainian film. Yeah. And then 32 Sounds is an extraordinary thing. It's a little bit like Anselm, though. Especially, how did you see it? Were you able to see it in a theater with the headphones and the narration and everything? It's an amazing movie, and I'm so pleased that it got on the short list. I'm delighted. I hope everybody goes out and sees it if, if they can. It's playing in L.A. at the at Vidyas, again, because they keep selling it out. Yeah, I think here's another case where 
Sam Green is a beloved filmmaker and has a lot of friends in the branch because he's just a unique artist in the doc space and he's so collaborative. I think, you know, folks just want to recognize what he's been doing all these years. He was nominated, but that was before he started a whole new career as doing these live documentary performances. Yeah. They're amazing. And this time they actually, he used the, the sound designer, very big deal Hollywood sound designer who worked on Mad Max, Fury Road, you know, Mark Mangini, the, to help him create a, a version of it, a, a 7.1 version of it that could play in theaters, even without the headsets and everything. So there is a wider audience for it than there used to be, but I still worry about how many people actually got to see it. It's just so unique, you know? It's just so innovative and fun. I think sound in documentaries is getting so good. It's really picked up. I think about Goodnight Oppie, which did not make it to the awards last year, but to a lot of awards last year, but the sound design there was by the same sound designer, I believe, who did Dune, <laughs> which is incredible. That whole world is opening up in documentary. I did a Q&A with it. The Foley artist who worked with him, who did the tree, falling. It's just so cool. He's playing around with what's real and what's fake. He also comes up with some very moving moments that surprised me. So that movie sticks with me. I saw that one twice. To Kill a Tiger is one that I saw and thought it just seemed familiar to me. There had been a short that was very similar. It's a really moving and well-made movie. It's just I felt like it was familiar. I, I would say of the 15, this was probably the one that surprised me the most to be on the list, just because I hadn't heard a lot of buzz about it over the course of the award season. From this point forward, how important would you say is it to have the backing of a streamer or a broadcaster cable network? Well, I think that for the phase that goes into choosing the, the top five, the branch members are all going to watch all 15 movies. I think we can count on them to do that. They could be free from marketing considerations. It's when it, we get to the top five, getting the overall 9,000 people who are voting down. That's a different matter. And that's when you get, you know, my dear octopus or whatever that thing is called. <laughs> <laughs> octopus teacher. Thank you. My octopus teacher. Okay, there's three films we haven't discussed, and those are the three that I think all of us agreed are almost a given for nominations. Again, we will see. But those three are American Symphony, Beyond Utopia, and still a Michael J. Fox movie. And maybe you could work your way up from the bottom of those three and just talk about each one in turn. Question with the with still is that any filmmaker who looks at that movie will recognize what Davis Guggenheim brought and his editor, let's be honest. We've never seen archive footage. It, it all worked out because you have a movie star who, who you could steal from his movies while you're telling the story of his life, and you have a movie star willing to do reenactments, you know. They took little bits of things and edited them together in a very artful way that isn't off-putting and it looks organic. It doesn't feel fake. It's extraordinary what they did. And that's the reason why this Liberty bio keeps coming up. The issue for that movie is the fact that it's also up for an Emmy. And I think that could be 
a negative for it. So what happens if it wins the Emmy in January? I could see it not winning the Oscar after that, because I think that people will be you know, annoyed by that. I don't think they want to give him what he deserves, actually. I, I feel very strongly Davis Guggenheim did it, and Michael J. Fox himself delivered an extraordinary piece of work. What's so impressive is, is they didn't just edit different pieces randomly of his career into a montages. What they did is they actually used bits that were contemporaneous, where he was on screen contemporaneous with the depictions of things in his, in his life. Um, and so you actually see him growing older on screen, not that much, but a bit maturing on screen as we hear about his life going along. So that kind of continuity between the two worlds, I thought was vertiginous at points. Incredible. But they also took reenactments and edited them together with right. archive and edited it together with interview. Yeah, it's there's a whole sequence where I don't know how many people have seen this, but the sequence where he's double dipping and he's doing the TV show family talk yeah, at the yeah. same time that he's doing Act to the Future. And he has to go, he's like going around the clock and he's getting in the car and he's going here and he's going there. That section is where they really, you know, do this. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, that was amazing. Davis, when we talked to him, he did give kudos to his editor. Once again, I'm reminded of the fact that documentary editors really should be recognized by the Academy in the best editing category. We did see American Symphony get a score shortlist. One other note, which is just still won the Critics' Choice Award and Davis Guggenheim Best Director. What are your thoughts on Critics' Choice as a predictor of the Oscars? They used to be pretty good, but not the doc side. The doc side, which I am a member of and I vote in the doc side of it. It's almost, I'm a member of a club I'm not sure I want to be a member of. It's not, they don't always pick well. I was fond of Good Night, Oppie. They picked that and no one else did. (laughs) I don't know about the doc side of the Critics' Choice Awards. The regular Critics' Choice Awards are more predictive. Uh, Although I think the Golden Globes are becoming more predictive than the Critics' Choice because they're more international now. They have a bigger membership. And then how would you handicap Beyond Utopia and American Symphony? So I was as impressed with Beyond Utopia as clearly everyone else is because the level of danger, again, is so extraordinary. The director, who was an editor, right, edited this together in a very clever way because she figured out that she could give us a kind of in the present, blow by blow of the trajectory of these escapes and do other interviews, interstitials that showed you what the life of being in North Korea really is like. It was an unusual strategy that she deployed there. And it made it possible to understand the culture and follow the, because these people weren't going to sit down and explain what their lives were like in interviews while they're in the middle of an escape, you know? So she had to track the escape and still somehow open up that world for us. So that movie is one of those cases where you're being shown something you've never seen before. And Pastor Kim, the the Underground Railroad leader, was an extraordinary character. So the fact that Madeline Gavin got a hold of him is an amazing thing. It could win. It could win. It could win. I actually think that Eternal Memory could win too, by the way. Wow. Okay. I felt like Beyond Utopia maybe was peaking around Labor Day in September when I saw that it was, I think, opening... Telluride and Camden Film Festival. At that point, I hadn't seen the film yet. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty, that's a rare achievement. I don't know 
if the campaign has continued to accelerate or where they're no, at. No, it's building. It does see- it's building. Yeah. It's doing very well. And American Symphony, what's not to like? Matthew Heineman has been with us for a while. He was nominated for Cartel and he didn't win. That was a case where a lot of his films, we all know that he runs in, into danger. This is another thing where he figured out that he could not only show us what John Batiste was doing in his musical life as he was composing a symphony, but what was going on in his private life with his wife and managed to get that access and, and that trust. And it's heartbreaking. So no other movie except maybe still and Eternal Memory have as much emotion. That's not true. Beyond Utopia has emotion too. Emotion does carry the day, I think. Don't you? I think it does with the full Academy. I think maybe it's less of a factor with the branch. Yeah, you might be right. If I'm coming away from this conversation with anything, it may be that I would I need to move 20 days and marry Paul up. Interesting. I loved American Symphony, and I felt very emotional at certain parts, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. It is a departure for Matthew. He has been nominated, so maybe this is his time to get to the mountaintop. Who doesn't like John Baptiste? If you have a heart, you, you just you have to love John Baptiste and his relationship with his wife. At the same time, it really shows another side to him that I don't think we had seen. So it really fills out him. He becomes a much more real person, in my mind, than he had been before. So are we you calling? Are you? This is December 22nd. It's the morning of December 22nd. Right now... Is your favorite to win American Symphony? Yeah. An easy, yeah. Okay, great. I'd like to talk about our own personal favorites. On this list, what's your personal favorite? What would you love to see win? I would love to see the eternal memory. I think that's a special. She's extraordinary, Meta Alberti. What she did there is pretty extraordinary. And I'm with you. I I think this is my favorite of this list. I really like the Pigeon Tunnel, but it's not on the list. And she was nominated just a few years back, as you pointed out, for the mall agent. And I think that was at the time perceived as kind of a cute, clever picture about an assisted living facility. But really, in many ways, it was a scathing indictment of the way we treat the elderly, as well as really problematizing the very nature of documentary intervention. And in the same way, I think the internal memory is this wonderful, intimate depiction of love in the face of enormous challenge. You know, really represents in an intimate way the depredations of Alzheimer's. A lot of it was shot because during COVID by the participants themselves. And if that weren't enough, it's also about how media mediates history and how the people of Chile have been practicing deliberate forgetting and remembrance for the past 50 years. I think it's an incredibly layered portrait. Just on the verite relationship alone, it's powerful. But when you add in this incredible investigation of South American history, it's just it's an, on another level. I couldn't agree more. My favorite in terms of which of these 15 I'd like to win would be Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project by Michelle and Joe. I just thought it was an incredible portrait. And as you said, Anne, they really found it in the making of it. As anyone knows who's seen the film, Nikki herself was not always 100% uh, cooperative or collaborative, but ultimately the three of them found their way. And the end result was pretty magical. I would also note that, you know, Michelle and Joe are also on the short list for best documentary short with their film, Black Girls Play, the story of hand games. They have two cracks at it, I guess. They're such good films here. They're all so good. I, I could easily have picked something and felt just as strongly about it. 
Thanks so much, Anne. And uh, we'll check back in with you maybe offline when the nominations come out. All right. Always a pleasure. 